right, well, good morning, everyone. I'm excited to be here. This is my first time at Denver Prez, and uh, yeah, it's a, it's a joy and honor to, to bring God's Word to you this morning. Um, like Ronnie said, I am the RUF campus minister at the Academy. I've been there for about five years. The Air Force Academy is a, is a weird place. Um, Ronnie can probably attest to this. It is not like most colleges. You know, most colleges, they only evaluate their students based off of their grade point average. Well, at the academy, that's not good enough. They also have their MPA, which is their military performance appraisals. They have their PEA, which is their physical education average. And then at the end of each semester, those three categories, they're weighted and they are averaged. And then each cadet, at the end of each semester, they get their OPA, which is their overall performance average. You can ask Ronnie what his was. I'm sure it was amazing. But it's interesting um, how our students respond to the number that's attached to their name. Um, you know, you can imagine that um, when a number is attached to your name, it can mess with your head, it can mess with your heart, especially for our young cadets, our, our doulies, right, our freshmen. Uh, Dooley comes from the, the, the Greek word doulos, right? It means slave or, or servant, and that's essentially what they are. Well, they came into the academy in high school, they were all ranked in the top 5 10% of their class. And then they get to the academy, and they get their first OPA, and they realize that they're at the bottom of their class for possibly the first time ever. We're heading into the spring semester, and some of our students are still coping with the fact that they are at the bottom of their class. They've allowed a number to replace their name. And that's what happens when you conflate a number with your name. You lose your name in the number. On the other side of the spectrum, some of our students are still ranked in the top 5, 10%. And they're not just ranked in the top 5 to 10% of their USAFA class. They're ranked in the top 5 to 10% of a class filled with people who have always been ranked in the top 5 to 10% of all of their classes, right? And so you can imagine how this could also go to your head. Uh, they can start thinking, um, I'm better, I'm greater, I'm smarter than my peers. And once again, when you conflate a number with your name, you lose your name in the number. Tim Keller once said, don't let success go to your head and don't let failure go to your heart. You know, whether you have a good number next to your name or a bad number or really any number in between, if you conflate that number with your name, you will lose your name in the number. You will lose your sense of self, your sense of self, your identity, the core of who you are will become a number. The truth is, we're all swimming in the same pool. Uh, maybe it looks a little bit differently in our world than at the Air Force Academy, but we're all swimming in a very similar pool. Everyone feels the pressure to conflate a number with their name. And so my question this morning for you is, what number have you attached to your name? What number has become the, the core of who you are? Maybe it is your GPA when you were in college. Maybe you still are in college. Maybe it was your, your SAT scores or your ACT scores, whether good or bad, you can't get over it. Maybe it's the number of children that you have, whether that number is zero or 20 or somewhere in between. Maybe the number that you conflate with your name is the number of degrees that you have. Maybe it is the number of Instagram followers or the number of TikTok followers that you have. 
Maybe it's the number of marathons you've run. Maybe it's that dollar amount number when you look at your bank account statement. Maybe it's, you know, this is convicting for me, I'm sure Ronnie, maybe it's the number of people that are in your church or in your RUF ministry. Whenever you conflate a number with your name, you lose your name in the number. Now this morning we're going to be looking at John chapter 3. And it's a story of a man who had a really great number next to his name. This man had the most impressive list of credentials. He would have been ranked in the top 1% of all Israelites. In a sense, he was the distinguished graduate from the Pharisaical Academy. He was a big deal, and yet he still couldn't rest. He still desired more. He was still lacking because he had lost his name in a number. Now, that man is Nicodemus, and Nicodemus decides that he needs to go see a guy named Jesus, a man who was turning the religious world upside down. Jesus was performing miracle after miracle. He was teaching profound truths. His sermons were becoming legendary. He was gathering this loyal group of followers. He was royally annoying the Pharisees. Nicodemus decides to go see Jesus, and he knocks on his door, and he essentially says, Check out the number next to my name. Check out my impressive list of credentials. Certainly I, of all people, the great Nicodemus, has done enough to earn God's favor and love. And Jesus essentially replies, if you want to enter my house, you need to check your credentials at the door. In my house, I won't call you by a number. I've called you by your name. You're mine. And you being mine is who you ultimately are. So if you are willing and able, I invite you to please stand for the reading of God's word. All right. So we'll be looking at John chapter 2, verse 23 through chapter 3, verse 15. It's kind of a long passage. All right. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? 
No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but not the word stands forever. Amen. All right, let me pray for us. You can be seated. Heavenly Father, thank you um, for this, this powerful text. Help us to, uh, to leave our credentials at the door this morning, to be humbled. Um, you have given us a joy that is inexpressible in Christ. You have given us a living hope that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading. We pray that we would latch onto that hope this morning, that we would see Christ more clearly, that the gospel would become more beautiful this morning. It's through his name we pray. Amen. All right. So in the 19th century, the late 19th century, there was a guy named Charles Blondin, and he became the most famous tightrope walker in the world when he put a rope across Niagara Falls. Well, as his, his act grew in fame, Charles Blondin, he grew in confidence, and he started doing things that like nobody else would dare to do. The first thing, he ditched his balancing pole, and he walked across Niagara Falls without any assistance. Next, he walks across backwards. Then he walks across blindfolded. And then on one occasion, he straps a stove onto his back. He walks to the middle of the rope. He sits down. He takes the stove off his back. He cracks some eggs. He makes an omelet, and he eats it in front of his adoring fans. This guy was nuts, right? Nobody could do what Charles Bonin could do. Nobody could walk across Niagara Falls like he could. He was in a league all by himself. Now, in first century Judaism, Nicodemus was also in a league all by himself. He wasn't just any old Pharisee. Nicodemus was essentially chosen by his contemporaries to serve on the Sanhedrin, which was like the ruling body or somewhat like, the, like a religious supreme court in Israel. And not only did Nicodemus serve on the Sanhedrin, as this passage says in verse 10, Nicodemus was the teacher in Israel. He was the teacher. He was like the dean of the theology department. Nicodemus knew his Bible inside and out. He was powerful. He was influential. Some scholars even argue that Nicodemus was one of, if not the most influential and most respected people in all of Israel. Nicodemus was a big deal. He was in a league all by himself. Nicodemus was the guy that everybody looked at and was like, that's what right looks like. That's what I aspire to be. I want to be like Nicodemus. Nicodemus was the guy who had like, you know, a jam-packed schedule. He had meetings all the time, really important meetings. And yet he still found time to like wake up at four in the morning, you know, have his daily devotional, go to the gym, get his sweat on, come home, like make breakfast for his wife and kids before anybody woke up, right? He was that kind of guy. He was like Ronnie. <laughs> Listen, Nicodemus was the picture. He was the picture of self-discipline and spiritual zeal and popularity and political influence. Nicodemus was a big deal, and he was in a league all by himself. But according to John, Nicodemus was also the picture of something else. 
According to John, Nicodemus was the picture of someone who was walking in the dark. Now, for first century Israelites, this story would have been shocking to hear. That the great Nicodemus was sneaking over to see Jesus in the middle of the night, it would have been shocking, and that's kind of the point. This, this passage is meant to shock us. If there was anybody in all of Israel who had done enough, who had the credentials to enter God's house, to, to enter into God's kingdom by what he has done, that person was Nicodemus. But in verse 2, Nicodemus, he comes to Jesus in the middle of the night. He comes under the cover of darkness. And you know, John doesn't explicitly tell us why Nicodemus came at night. You know, perhaps he just got off work and that was the only time that he could go over to see Jesus. Maybe he, uh, he was on his way to something else and he just happened to pass Jesus' house and he had heard all the uproar and he wanted to go meet this guy. Maybe he was going to like a distinguished dinner party or something. I doubt it, right? And here's why. The theme of light and darkness, the contrast between the two is a major theme in John's gospel and it runs literally from start to finish. And so it's no coincidence that, that, that he is walking in the darkness here. Despite all of his credentials, and they were impressive, he was still in the dark. Despite his high position, despite his influence, he was still looking for more. He still knew that he was lacking. The number that was attached to his name, it wasn't enough. And I think that he was starting to realize that truth. So Nicodemus, he, he knocks on Jesus' door, right? And when Jesus answers, Nicodemus bursts into this stream of compliments. The first thing he says is he calls Jesus rabbi. Now that in and of itself is a compliment. This is the teacher in Israel, and he is calling Jesus, who, as far as we know, didn't attend any elite religious schools. He calls Jesus teacher. And then he continues, he says, We know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. In other words, word is spreading we know what you've done. We can hear what you've been saying. You're becoming famous. You're gaining all these followers. Like in, in 21st century, you're TikTok famous, right? You're becoming a big deal in our culture. And we see that in you. And we'd like to invite you to join our Pharisaical club. We're at the top 1%. And we see something in you. Maybe you would like to join. Well, how does Jesus respond to this String of compliments. Wow, Nicodemus. I really, I'm, I'm honored that you would think so highly of me, that you would offer me an invitation to be one of you, your prestigious club, that you would think that I'm legit, that I'm the real deal. That's so cool of you, Nicodemus. No, Jesus doesn't even say, like, thanks, but no thanks. In John 2, verse 25, as we read, it says that Jesus already knew what was in the heart of men. And so he didn't need the affirmation from men. He already had the affirmation from God the Father. He also knew what was in the heart of Nicodemus. And what was in Nicodemus' heart? Spiritual darkness. 
And so Jesus goes straight to his dark heart with his words. He says, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. Literally that phrase, it means you have to be born from above. He's saying, despite all of your credentials, unless you're born again, until you move from darkness into light, you can't come into my house. You cannot enter God's kingdom. He's saying, your number doesn't matter here. Now, Nicodemus didn't understand, right? And he says, you know, what in the world are you talking about? You know, everybody else thinks that the number next to my name is really neat and impressive. Everybody else thinks that my credentials are something. And he's saying, he says, and you want me to do what? You want me to be born again? How can an old man do such a thing? This is crazy talk. How can I be born again? That's impossible. And that's the point. And I think it's the point Jesus was driving home. It is impossible. It's impossible to be born again. The one thing that is required to get you into God's kingdom is impossible for you to do for yourself. Like it cannot be done. So just think about your physical birth for a moment. What role did your will play or your intellect or your credentials, what role did they play in your physical birth? How much effort did you contribute to being born? Zero, right? You had no say on when you were born or where you were born, to whom you were born, why you were born. You had no say. You were passive in the, in the whole process. Your birth wasn't done by you. Your physical birth was done for you. You did nothing to earn your physical birth. And in this discourse, Jesus is essentially saying the exact same thing about your spiritual birth. You contribute nothing. The greatest number next to your name, it won't save you. Now, this is what we call regeneration. It is when God quickens our hearts, right? He, he makes us alive. In John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me unless God draws him first. God is the one who not only initiates our new birth, he's the one responsible for it from start to finish. Our salvation, our new birth, it's not done by us, it's done for us. Now, I'm not really into zombie movies um, or zombie TV shows, but I want you to follow my train of thought. Some of my cadets are really big into like The Walking Dead, and so I have to at least keep up on my zombie lore. Um, imagine for a second that there was a zombie, and he goes to the mall because he wants to be a human. And he goes to the mall, and he spends every penny that he owns, every Every single cent. And he, and, he, and he buys new clothes. He gets like some Patagonia jacket and he gets some sweet chacos, right? He lives in Colorado, of course. This is, a, this is a Coloradian zombie. He gets a cool haircut. He goes and gets a skin treatment, like the best skin treatment available. And as he's walking out of the mall, he sees this nice little family and they're eating lunch and they all look so sweet. And they're laughing and enjoying each other. And then he's overcome with something. He's overcome with this urge. 
just to eat them for lunch. Why? Why does he have this urge? I thought he just became a human. Well, it's obvious. He's still a zombie. Despite his best efforts to clean himself up, he's still a zombie at his core. He still wants to eat people. Listen, like Nicodemus, you cannot smart your way into God's family. You can't willpower your way into his kingdom. Like Nicodemus, you can't earn your way, earn a ticket, if you will, into God's heavenly house. It can't be done. If you are responsible for even 1% of your salvation, you're done. You're doomed. The 1%, if you will, would be infinite. It would be impossible for you to bridge that gap. You have to be born again. And this new birth comes from outside of you. It is, a, it is an outside-in grace. It's an outside-in grace that is evidenced by an inside-out transformation. Oftentimes in evangelical Christianity, we flip the two. See, Nicodemus knew his Bible inside and out. He knew the stories. He knew who God was, and yet he was still in the dark. He was spiritually dead. He was like a a spiritual zombie trying to dress himself up all cute. Jesus says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. It's no coincidence that the imagery used throughout this discourse, it comes directly from Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37, Valley of Dry Bones. I'm sure you're familiar with the story. In Ezekiel 37, he's taken to this valley of dry bones. The bones in this valley are dead, right? They're dry. They've been dead for a while. They can't will themselves back to life. They couldn't, like, think their hearts to beat again. They were hopeless to save themselves. These bones had no life in them. In John 3, Nicodemus' soul was like that valley. He was dry bones spiritually. He had no hope to save himself. You see, becoming a Christian is a supernatural work that is initiated, that is accomplished by God. Just as dry bones can't work themselves back to physical life, you and I, we cannot work ourselves into spiritual life. Now, I think that most Reformed Christians understand this truth, right? We're Reformed Presbyterian folk in here. We understand justification, We understand that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, for God's glory alone, as revealed in the scriptures alone. We understand that we are justified by grace alone. But I would argue, when it comes to our sanctification, this is where many Reformed people swerve off course. Sanctification, the process of becoming more and more like Jesus, dying to sin and living to righteousness— We struggle here in the Reformed tradition, and and we're not alone in this struggle. Christians have been struggling with sanctification since the beginning. You look at the the Galatian Christians. You know, they had Paul, like the the best Reformed theologian who ever walked the earth, right? They had Paul as their pastor, 
and yet they swerve off course. They started out in faith. They started out depending on Christ's righteousness for their acceptance with God. But then they started to swerve, and so Paul calls them out. He says, oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? He says, did you, did you receive the Spirit? Were you born again? Did you receive new life by works of the law, by your credentials, or by hearing with faith? And then he goes, are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? What's Paul saying? He's saying, you started off right. It's like you started off right. You started off like over here in the spirit, trusting Jesus alone for your salvation. You understood that you were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But then something has happened. Now you're over here and you're trying to get yourself perfected in the flesh. As if you can earn God's acceptance based off of what you do. He's like, you didn't start off that way. You started off trusting that Christ was enough. He says, all your righteousness is just filthy rags. Christ's righteousness is all you need. The truth is, we're not so different from the Galatians, are we? Right? Many Christians start off right. They start off depending solely on the righteousness of Christ for their acceptance with their Heavenly Father. But then something happens. Life happens, right? Hardships happen. Sin takes hold. And then forgetfulness sets in. People sin, and then they sin, and then they sin again, and they start to forget. They start to forget that all of their sin was nailed to the cross with Christ. And when you start to forget that truth, you start to think that you have to earn it to stay in God's good graces. You see, over time, we who started off in the Spirit, we begin to think, God can't love me anymore. How could he possibly love me? He probably hates me now. I hate myself. How could God love me? Eventually, God's grace has to run out, right? It can't just, he can't just keep forgiving over and over and over again. I need to do something. I need to prove my value. I need to prove myself worthy of his love and affection. You see what happens? We who started out in the spirit, we start to think that we have to contribute something to earn God's favor, even though, and don't miss this, even though we already have God's favor in Christ. And it's not going anywhere. Listen, you don't work to get God's favor. You work because you already have it. And my friends, that is a paradigm-shifting truth. You don't work to get God's favor. You work because it's yours in Christ. Listen, self-justification doesn't work. It never has, and it never will. And that is why Paul is so shocked that the Galatian Christians have left the gospel, the true gospel, and have, and have turned to a, what he calls a different gospel. That's what Paul calls any works-based system of salvation. He says it's a completely different gospel. 
Because if you're relying on your credentials for your acceptance with God, that's a completely different gospel. He says the gospel is not you getting to God, it's God getting to you. This difference, it lies at the heart of Christianity. It strikes at the fundamentals. Okay? The gospel is not us getting to God, it's God getting to us. And I think that Nicodemus in John 3 was starting to realize this. I think he was starting to realize that a works-based system of salvation was not good news. In fact, I think he was starting to realize that it was really, 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 really bad news. Really bad news. You see, the law says, do this and live. And we look at all that the law requires, and we're like, well, I can never do that. So how can I live? See, the law says, do this and live, but, but, it, but you can't do it. And you know you can't do it, and so you're plagued with the question, have I done enough? Does God love me now? It's like my kids, when they, they pick up a flower and they start doing the, he loves me, he loves me not. It's like, God loves me. I've been a good boy today. He loves me not. I sinned again. He loves me. He loves me not. And that's just kind of how we go through life. That's what works-based religions will do to you. They will strip you of assurance. The law shows us our need for new life, but the, but the law can't give us new life. And the law will never show you mercy. If you think you're going to find mercy in the law, you're wrong. The standard has been set by a holy, perfect God. And what is the standard? It is holy perfection. And none of us measure up. I imagine that Nicodemus, as he's walking over to Jesus' house, under the cover of darkness, he was beginning to realize that his best efforts, like all of his credentials, they couldn't meet God's standard. Keep in mind, Nicodemus knew his Bible inside and out. He was like the dean of the theology department, right? He knew God's law. And I would argue that the more you know about the law, the more you realize you don't measure up. A couple years ago, my family and I went to Disney World, and every day, without fail, one of our children would, would stand up to that dang measuring stick to get on like the, the ride of their dreams, and they would find out that they were too short. And it was always super sad, and we would do our best to console them and be like, well, there's this ride, but their heart was set. They wanted to go on that ride. The standard was set. And they didn't measure up. And my friends, Disney World shows no mercy. <laughs> no, they don't. And neither does the law. It shows you no mercy. And this brings us to verses 14 and 15. And I love this, right? Since Nicodemus is a Bible scholar, he's a biblical expert, Jesus refers him to a story in Numbers 21. Okay, God has just delivered the Israelites from Egypt. And now they're wandering through the wilderness, and God is taking care of their physical needs. He's sending manna from heaven. But as the journey to the promised land, to Canaan, continued, the people grow impatient. And they begin to grumble, and they can start to complain about Moses. And not just Moses, they start to grumble and complain about God. And so what does God do? Well, God sends a, a plague of poisonous snakes 
to discipline the Israelites, to call them back to himself. He is disciplining them for their faithlessness in order to bring about repentance. All right, so this wasn't, he wasn't like punishing them maliciously, right? He was disciplining them to bring them back to himself through repentance. And I think one thing that's often missed when you, when you look at Numbers 21 is that God almost immediately provides the antidote. Almost immediately. God says to Moses, he says, hey, I want you to make this bronze serpent and I want you to put it on a pole. And if anyone looks at that symbol, that serpent on the pole in faith, they will be healed. You see, the serpents that were killing the Israelites, God says, I want you to take a symbol of the thing that is killing them, put it on a pole, and when they look at that symbol of death, they will be healed. Now keep in mind that the snakes, they didn't just immediately disappear when the pole was raised. They were still on the ground. They were still biting at the ankles of the Israelites. I, I, I imagine the Israelites wanting, are wanting to look down at the snakes, and they're wanting to avoid them or stomp on their heads or something, right? They're sick of getting bit by the snakes. But God says, stop looking down. He says, start looking up. I'll take care of the snakes. And so Moses, he lifts up the pole, and everyone who looks at that pole in faith was healed 100% success rate. Everyone was healed. Now, Nicodemus would have known this story, and he probably would have known what Jesus was implying. Jesus was saying, when I'm lifted up like that, I want you to look at me. Don't look down. Even when your sin is biting at your ankles, don't look down, look up. Because here's the thing, when I'm hanging on a cross, I'm going to become the very thing that is killing you. I'm going to become your self-righteousness. I'm going to become your self-hatred. I'm going to become your legalism and your addictions and your sin and your shame. I'm going to become it. I'm going to become everything that is killing you. And then I'm going to kill it for you. And if you look up in faith and you see me on that cross, you will be healed 100% success rate. You know, of all of Charles Blondin's great feats, there was one that made him truly famous. One day he walks over to this large crowd of people and he, and he asks them if they thought that he could have somebody on his back as he walked across Niagara Falls. And so he goes over and he asks them, does anybody believe that I can carry a person across on my back? And all of the fans, all of, all of the, the, the crowd, they started saying, yes, we believe that you can do it. But when he asked for a volunteer, it's just crickets, right? Like nobody raises their hand to take him up on his offer. You see, they all genuinely believe that he could do it but nobody trusted him with their life. Until one man stepped forward, a guy named Harry Calcord. Brave, brave man. Now, imagine if Harry, he gets onto 
um, Charles Bondin's back, and they start to make their way across the, the Niagara Falls. And about halfway, he, he taps Blondin on the shoulder, and he says, you can let me off here. This is my stop. I think I'm good to make it the rest of the way on my own. Charles Blondin would have been like, you're nuts, man. Like, you will not survive on your own. You will not make it across. Listen, depending on your righteousness for acceptance with God to earn his favor is like trying to walk across a tightrope that you can't cross. Maybe you get a few steps, right? And you feel great about yourself and you start to, to conflate your name with the number of how many steps you got. But eventually you'll start to sway. You'll lose your balance and you'll fall. And my friends, there is a 100% failure rate for anybody who tries to cross on their own. Listen, if you want to get to the other side, you cling to the one who's carrying you across. And not only at the beginning of the Christian life, but every step throughout. Listen, Christians never stop clinging. Never. You know, before Blondin walked across the tightrope, he gave Harry these instructions. He said, look up, Harry. You're no longer Harry Colcord. You are Charles Blondin. Until I clear this place, you be a part of me. Mind, body, and soul. If I sway, you sway with me. Do not attempt to do any balancing yourself. Brothers and sisters, through faith in Christ... You are united to Christ, mind, body, and soul. That means his righteousness is your righteousness. That means his sacrifice is your sacrifice. His atoning sacrificial death is your death. His resurrection is your death. And get this, his credentials are your credentials. It's amazing news. And therefore... Your life isn't a balancing act to earn God's favor and love because you already have it in Christ. And so all you have to do is cling to the one who's carrying you across. Jesus won't let you go. He won't let you fall. He has a 100% success rate at getting all of his people all the way home. Even people like me, people like you, people like Nicodemus and like the church in Galatia people who conflate a number with their name and then they lose their name in a number in their credentials. You know, in Ephesians 1, verse 4, Paul says that God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. You notice he didn't say that God chose all the great things that you will do or have done. He says he chose you. I know your name. I've called you my own. In John 19, you know, we see Nicodemus again. I love that his story doesn't end in John 3. In John 19, we see him again, and Jesus has just been crucified. And Nicodemus comes, and catch this, he doesn't come by night. He comes in the light of day. And he brings with him 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes for Jesus' burial preparations. Something happened between John 3 and 19. 
And then I think what happened is Nicodemus looked up and he saw his Savior hanging on a cross for him. A Savior who took upon himself the serpent's bite. A Savior who took upon himself the sting of death. Liberating him from his credentials. And that's the good news that the gospel brings to us this morning. The gospel liberates you from your credentials. It removes the number from your name. And so you can check them at the door. The number next to your name, it won't get you into God's family and it won't keep you out of God's family. Christ's credentials get you in and Christ's credentials will keep you in forever. Amen? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you are, you are a good and gracious God that you would do something so wondrous, so un, unbelievable, that you would become flesh, that you would lower yourself, become a servant, to die a cursed death on a cursed cross so that we could look up at that symbol of death and be healed 100% of the time. Uh, we pray that you would free us from our credentials, liberate us from the tyranny that our credentials can bring, and help us to cling to Christ every hour of every day. And it's through his name we pray. Amen.